this episode of the Device Talks Weekly Podcast is brought to you by Device Talks Tuesdays. Join us on April 20th. Our friends at Nelson Labs will lead a discussion called The Impact of MDR on Biocompatibility. Go to devicetalks.com for more information. All right, you ready for this? Ready. Tom Salemi, welcome back to the Device Talks weekly podcast, or if you're a first-time listener, welcome. We've got a full episode for you today. We'll be speaking with Lisa Ehrenhart of Abbott. I've known Lisa for a good long time, knew her back when she was CEO of Intersect, so it was great to catch up with her today to learn what she's doing at Abbott, what Abbott is working on, and how it has endured the past 12 months. Abbott's diagnostics, of course, have been one of those COVID-19 heroes, and uh, Abbott's medical device group has pushed through as well. And we'll hear all about that from Lisa, including some changes they made to make their products more lockdown friendly, or at least to prepare for connectivity challenges going forward. Before we talk with her, we're going to introduce a new approach here at the Device Talks weekly podcast. We're going to drill down on one of our news items of the week. The news being that the FTC is moving to block Illumina's acquisition of Grail. We'll speak with Christopher Kerr, the Vice President of Medical Affairs at Grail. I actually spoke with him two weeks ago before this news came out. So I was looking more then to do a deeper dive on what Grail is hoping to achieve. But the news this week has allowed us to expand that discussion. And we will bring in a conversation I had this morning, Friday morning with Vijay Kumar of Evercore. ISI. He's a senior managing director there. He covers Illumina. And we'll talk about what the FTC said, what it means, and what is the likely outcome of this challenge to Illumina's acquisition of Grail. But before we get into all of that, it's my distinct pleasure to bring in Chris Newmarker, executive editor of Life Sciences at Mass Device. Chris Newmarker, how are you, sir? Doing well, Tom. Doing well. I got some gripes, Chris. What, man? So just just to revisit very quickly the whole vaccine situation that we covered oh, yeah, last I'm year. Getting, yeah. I'm getting vaccinated on Monday, man. <laughs> how, but, how are things going in Massachusetts? How's that? Uh... So so I read in the Globe this morning. Uh, <laughs> it was buried in the article too that they're gonna they're gonna drop it down to 55 plus next oh, week. Oh, that's nice. It is, but you know, Gen Xers, the oldest Gen Xers are 55. So yeah. once again, the boomers are just trying to screw Gen X. Gen X, the forgotten generation. Just forgotten, man. Yeah, I know. It's like, I'm going to get out my old old Pearl Jam t-shirt. <laughs> I was, I thought we'd go with Breakfast Club, but if you want to, you want, you're one of the younger Gen Xers. So I, uh, guess, yeah, uh, yeah. I guess that would be your your go-to. I'm, a, I'm more of a John Hughes Gen Xer. So. You're going to be, are you, are you just going to go outside of a CVS with like a trench coat and hold a boom box over your head? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to play this song again in this damn Peter Gabriel song again and again. Give me, give me my damn vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> That's a strategy, Chris Newman. I think I might do that. <laughs> You'll get there, man. You'll get there. Don't worry. You know, everyone who's had a vaccine is like, oh, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. But then they get the vaccine and they're on social media like, woohoo, I'm vaccinated. <laughs> oh, don't tell me it's not a big deal, people. Don't tell me it's not a big deal. 
No, not 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 worrying about seriously getting ill is a big deal. Oh yeah. yeah. No, you know I'm 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 not going out aside until I get my vaccination. I'm not going to be that guy who gets shot two hours after the peace treaty is signed. No, sir. I'm I'm keeping my head down. It's not going to be the like the end of all quiet on the west front. You know, like it was just minutes away. Like why? Exactly. All right. My next gripe, Chris, and it's not a gripe as much. As I mean, I'm, you're griping enough. You should be old enough to get the vaccine. <laughs> <laughs> this weekend is the Godzilla versus King Kong release, or at least it was released this week. And I, I'm yeah. prepared to watch it, but I never got it. I mean, Godzilla, you know, how could he? How could he not have just kicked King Kong's butt? It's ridiculous. He's much larger in all the other movies, and he shoots fire. And King Kong is like just a walking brisket, basically. Just you know. He's just made of fur. How is that not catch fire? But I mean, Kong is like a primate. He's like closely related to us human beings. Come on, we got. <laughs> I'm biased in favor of Godzilla. Yeah, Huge go. Godzilla fan. So. I mean, Godzilla is cool. I mean, it's. <laughs> <laughs> Cue the Godzilla song. All right, that's my other my other gripe. But uh, vaccine would be number one. Godzilla versus King Kong would be a distant number two. You know, since you're griping, Tom, um, I mean, do you have any opinions on the dropout? Oh, the, well, is that in the New Markers Newsmakers this week? It is not. Do, do you need to bring people up to speed on what the dropout is? You know, the fact that there's a uh, series on Hulu about Elizabeth Holmes, but is, is there just too much of this? Or We'll see, won't we? I mean, the trial isn't even over yet, and they're already doing a TV series about they're it. They're making they're making more more TV shows than we can certainly swing, swing a stick at, and it's a certainly a compelling story. I just hope John Kerry is getting some sort of producer credit. So there you go. Uh, yeah, I mean, this is the this he certainly deserves it. He broke the story; he should reap the benefits. So, if he's not part of this production, then then I think he has a follow up book that he can do. All right. Well, enough of my griping, Chris Newmark. You have an abundance of great stories for this week's Newmarkers Newsmakers. Let's start at number five. All right. Number five on the list. Uh, we've got uh, Illumina postponing its $8 billion acquisition of uh, Grail until uh, after September 20th. Um, and this is because the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, is uh, is challenging uh, the uh, the deal in, uh, in federal court, uh, saying that uh, this is going to kind of uh, get rid of competition for in the, you know, the early uh, cancer detection test markets. So, um, you know, there, there's been some uh, talk that we'd be seeing like more antitrust actions in the new administration. And uh, here we go. All right. Now it's time for our device talks deep dive. Let's hear from Chris Kerr. Chris is the vice president of medical affairs at Grail. And then we'll follow up with a conversation I had with Vijay Kumar of Evercare ISI. Let's listen. Chris Kier, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's going to be great to uh, get an update on Grail. It was definitely one of those exciting stories that uh, keeps getting better. But I just wanted to find out a bit about yourself. You're relatively new to the company, having joined last year. So take us a little bit into your background. Where did you start off and how did you find your way into Grail? Certainly. I am a hematologist oncologist and I joined the company back in May of 2020. Before that, I ran medical affairs for Novartis and there I worked on the CAR T-cell program. Mm -hmm. So that was an extremely innovative change for how we treat leukemias and lymphomas moving forward. And I had the chance to, to bring that globally from a global market standpoint. And so Grail was 
the logical next step for me in terms of what could be innovative and could really be a paradigm shift and a game changer. How does your perspective change? You're, you're going from a company that was developing treatments for cancer to one that's hopingly, hoping to make those treatments more effective by diagnosing the disease earlier. Is it, is it a different mindset or a different approach or does it feel very familiar to you? Yeah, I know it's a completely different mindset. Multi-cancer early detection, and that's what Gallery, the test the grail is going to be providing, sets out to do. So if you think about now, we have a couple of cancers, about four, that the US PSTF validates for, for regular screening, and that's considered standard of care, depending on the demographics that you fall within. The goal of Gallery is really to be able to screen and detect cancers earlier so we can intervene and change the morbidity and mortality. We're not screening for individual cancers. We're screening for 50 plus cancers by doing a simple blood draw. So I think that in itself is the game changer to be able to use a blood test, just like you get a blood test to check your cholesterol, to be able to screen for a, a, such a wide range of cancers. And is the intention that ultimately that the test will be administered at that, that same point for a routine physical examination, or is it typically uh, going to require some sort of a symptom or, or concern that leads to the blood test to confirm or not confirm a diagnosis? The way gallery is designed now is that it would be for people who are asymptomatic. So again, just like when you go get your cholesterol checked, you would go get this blood test to, to see if there was a cancer signal in your blood. So that's how we're positioning this as we move forward. And, you know, this really will be at the front lines. So this isn't necessarily a tool for an oncologist, but for a primary care physician. So we would be able to catch things earlier with the whole goal of being able to, to have patients who have earlier stage cancers where we can intervene and really make a difference on. I know you've announced some news this uh, year that has put you in a position to, to get those tests out, out to people. Let's, uh, let's take them one at a time and share as much as you're, you're comfortable sharing. But you announced last month the, the arrangement with Quest Laboratories to, uh, to work with them. What is that relationship? What will that do for, for Grail and for the gallery tests? This is a simple blood draw, right? We need to be able to have phlebotomist and to be able to uh, procure the blood from the patients and then send it to our laboratories that are based in California and one in North Carolina. So the ability to facilitate that using Quest, which is such a world-renowned laboratory phlebotomy service, is, is a fantastic step for us to bring this screening modality to a broader population. So does Quest process the tests for you, or is it more of a distribution path to get it into the hands of the, of the primary care and to get it into those, those healthcare channels? Yeah, it's more of a distribution because everything's actually processed in our laboratories, okay. either in Menlo Park or in the Research Triangle Park. You've been working in the oncology industry for, for a long time. What is the appetite like for tests like this? Obviously, you heard the numbers and we all want to have earlier diagnosis, but I'm wondering what the acceptance level is of, of physicians and of patients. Is this something that people are skeptical of, excited about, need education on? How would you characterize that? With any new paradigm shift, there will be people who, who need more information. And that's really our goal and our job is to educate people on exactly what this test can do. As I mentioned before, it's a blood draw. We screen for over 50 different types of cancer. 
I think what's important for people to appreciate is that this blood draw, the specificity is 99.3%. And the false positive rate for the screening modality is 0.7%. These are extremely important numbers when you think about how you're going to screen an entire population. So the big idea is for us really to be able to pick up these cancers early and then act upon them and intervene to reduce morbidity and mortality. So the numbers that we have published in the Annals of Oncology are extremely exciting. I think that's why there is a lens uh, across the United States about what this could do for for patients uh, and for populations as a whole. Yeah, help us d- dig into those numbers a, a, a bit more. I'm just looking at uh, your information or the company's information. It, it, you state that approximately 71% of all cancer deaths are attributed to cancers currently lacking available screening tests. And that by your modeling, it says early detection with Galleria could, could reduce late cancer diagnosis by more than half, resulting in a 39% reduction of five-year cancer deaths. That's Those are... are Amazing numbers. How will that be represented going forward in terms of these numbers? They're, they're, they're large percentages. Is this something that takes time to develop? Is this a, an impact that we may see immediately as to, you know, depending upon how many tests are done, of course, what does this look like going forward? That's the exciting part about how this is being adopted in the United States. And I I don't know if you saw the news, but we have partnered with the NHS in the United Kingdom to do a large trial there. So 165,000 patients as it stands right now to be able to ascertain their data and their responses to the test. In the United States, we are going to be opening in the next month or so a registry for patients who opt in to once they have the GRAL test so we can follow them from a larger stance as well. So this is the really exciting part is that this real world evidence is going to be coming in in real time as we move forward this year and next year and and in the future. So that data will be extremely exciting to look at because, you know, we do suggests that we'll be able to catch cancers earlier. And so the stage shift to be able to do that is is what's so exciting, I think, for epidemiologists and oncologists and physicians and and patients, frankly. And how many cancers are you going to be able to to test for? Again, looking at your background, or I see you have information on breast, cervical, lung, and bronchus, colorectal, and prostate. I don't know if those are just, if that those are just data points to represent the the larger cancer picture, or are these all cancers that you're going to be testing for? Yeah. So all of those, but it's 50 plus cancers that that we currently screen for in our tests, in our clinical trials, and what we will be screening for when we become commercial in the next several weeks. So in in the case of say colorectal or or prostate, does does your test supersede the the need for some of the, the testing that's gone on there, I guess I'm thinking more of colonoscopies. I know you're looking more than, than for cancer with that. You're looking for the polyps, but does this make those other kind of tests unnecessary or does this complement those tests? Yeah, this, this is certainly, it's a great point. This is not here to replace the current USPSTF screening guidelines. This is complementary in terms of what, what we pick up. But the beauty of this is, is that again, there are only four really USPSTF recommended test, right? So then, so 45 plus other cancers are are what this blood test is also picking up alongside the current standard of care. But I want to be clear that we're not here to replace the current standard of care screening guidelines. This is used as a complement. 
Sure. No, more, more is always better. And your other bit of uh, big news is your arrangement with the Providence Health System, which is obviously one of the larger health systems and I think one of the more innovative in terms of adopting new technologies and encouraging innovation. What does that arrangement allow for? So we're very excited about our partnership with Providence as we move forward. And you're right. This is a very innovative treatment. Providence is an innovative healthcare system. And I think they recognize the beauty of what this test could provide moving forward. So we will be rolling it out in in Providence centers, uh, and we look forward to future partners, partnerships with them from a you know, a research standpoint, but also from the commercial standpoint and being able to provide the screening test to as many people as possible. And do you see this as a situation where they're making it available again for these, these to the, their primary care networks, I imagine, for the, for physical, for annual exams that we all undergo? Is, is it going to get to that level immediately or is that something that you need to sort of build toward, build toward over time? Yeah, I think it will be a gradual process of the availability as we move forward. Okay, great. And finally, just to give us a sense of, of the commercial rollout. I believe you were slated to, to be in making this available in the second quarter. So I guess we're almost there. Yeah, we're almost there. This is what's so exciting as an oncologist to, to watch this come to fruition. So this will, so it's an LDT, uh, a laboratory developed test. We do have breakthrough device designation. This will be available in the next several weeks. So we're, we're very excited to, to bring this to the United States and the world as we move forward, hopefully. So as we come up closer to the commercialization, can you just walk us through the, the pathway? Is this an FDA approved test or is this going to be a lab developed test path? So we'll be introducing Gallery as a laboratory developed test. The lingo is an LDT in this community. We do have FDA breakthrough device designation and we're in uh, talks with the FDA and we will be submitting for FDA approval as we move forward. Again, we think that what this test can do is, is quite impressive from the data that we've shared thus far. So we have decided to go the LDT route now to bring this to the public as quickly as possible. And does does that limit you in any way as to how you can get this to patients and physicians? No, it's still done through, it's a CLIA certified approved test. You know, many, many tests that people get today when they go get their blood drawn is, is falls under the umbrella of an LDT. And just final question for you. I mean, you mentioned it earlier as a, as a, an oncologist. This must be an exciting project to, to work on. What do you speak to, to that excitement again? And what do you see the next three to five years looking like and for for these sort of tests that are there that are coming out? It seems like a real exciting time. We've had so many uh, amazing advances in in our therapeutics and how we treat cancer patients, but cancer is still going to kill about six hundred thousand people in the US. And so all of the things that we've done, there's still so much more work that we have to do. And as an oncologist and being married to an oncologist, we recognize that if you can catch cancer earlier, then you can intervene in the arc of the patient and hopefully help prevent the morbidity and mortality that is ultimately associated with the cancer diagnosis. So to me, being able to screen for things that we can't and historically haven't been able to look for and then intervene. I think that's what's so exciting as we move forward. And, and really that's 
the impetus for me to have come to Grail in the first place. Well, it's uh, exciting news. I, I look forward to to tracking the rollout and uh, hopefully taking one of these tests in a, in a future examination. Uh, Chris Kerr, thank you for joining us on the podcast. Lovely to meet you. Thank you. Thanks again for joining us, Chris. Now we're going to hear from Vijay Kumar of Evercore. I spoke with him Friday morning about the FTC's decision to challenge Illumina's acquisition of Grail. Let's listen. Well, Vijay Kumar, welcome back to the podcast. Well, thanks for having me on, Tom. It's a pleasure to be with you. I know it's a busy, busy week. And I want to talk to you, though, about uh, Lumina, which I'm sure is taking up a lot of your time. The uh, FTC's decision to basically block the Illumina Grail deal. It's interesting on a lot, a lot of different levels. Number one question, did you see this coming or was this a surprise? No, this was a surprise. You know, it's, it's interesting because typically you look at uh, market share concentration and a lot of that depends on how you define these end markets. And when you think about uh, these early cancer detection, it was a little surprising to us. Let's just get into it. I mean, what's, what's also intriguing about it is that Illumina founded Grail. I mean, it, don't, it owns about 10% or 12% of the company. So it, it basically spun it out and then tried to bring it back in and is being blocked from doing that. That's sort of an interesting, I think, dynamic. Does this, in the future, do you see companies not spinning things out because they might not be able to bring it back in as a result of this? No, I'm not sure we can make a broad conclusion. I know the surface, the details appear that way. Yeah. Well, I think reading through the FTC complaint, it's, it's a pretty uh, well-crafted complaint. And I think the FTC found the set of circumstances here unique. I mean, they're thinking about the longer term, you know, 10, 20, 30 years out. Uh, would this ultimately benefit or harm consumers? Uh, so it's a slightly different approach uh, that they took, which is fascinating. So let's speak then to then to that. I mean, what does this suggest uh, for the future? I mean, you've got a, you've got a, a company with a cutting edge technology that that's promising to develop a new market, a new industry, a new series of tests. I, I don't know how you can forecast that that if this company is acquired by by an Illumina or, or any strategic buyer, that it's going to have a hold on that technology and industry because there are other companies out there. We, we last time you were on, we talked about Thrive. There are other tests being being developed. So, what does this say for sort of the the future of of acquisitions of real cutting edge tech technologies like like this one? So, I, I don't think acquisitions of uh, cutting edge companies uh, that tapers by any means. I do think uh, this is very specific, unique. Uh, to Illumina, you know, the facts of the case are, if you go through uh, the FTC complaint, it's very logically constructed. The FTC's claim is, look, finding cancers early, uh, this could be a, a, a big deal for a game changer for consumers, right? 80% of cancers are detected late stage. This could be one of the biggest innovations, equivalent to IO drugs, even oncology drugs, right, in terms of how game changing it could be, uh, changing the survival curve. And now to do that, any other existing methods like TCR, tissue biopsy, those are not viable. Uh, the FTC also uh, looked at other companies' uh, technologies. They looked at uh, uh, thermal fissure. Uh, they looked at long-wave technologies like specific biosciences. And they came to the conclusion, Illumina's tech uh, is the only way to do it. Uh, sequencing is the only way to look at or evaluate early-stage uh, cancers. Uh, you're trying to find DNA in, uh, in, in the blood. And uh, the only viable technology is Bloom. So the conclusion, this is a critical component for test developers. Now you are right. Uh, there are a lot of uh, test developers 
Uh, you have Thrive, you have Freedom. Well, Thrive is now, will be part of that. Exactly. You have Freedom, Garden Health, and you have a myriad, a host, a whole range of uh, small companies coming in. The FTC's uh, concern is that uh, if I'm a test developer, I need to work really closely with Illumina uh, during the early uh, stages of uh, developing the test. I need to validate my assay, chemistry, design specific probes, perhaps looking at specific regions, et cetera. You'll need a lot of uh, technical support. Now, the FTC's concern is uh, by having that early look, at what kind of competition could enter in the alumina, the, the incentives for alumina could be uh, to thwart uh, uh, upcoming competition if there's anything to kill them. And, and so it's, 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 a, it's a very nuanced argument. They're not really talking about the current state of affairs. They're really talking about how this whole equation changes motives, right, for future test de- developers. And, and, uh, and, and I think there is uh, some validity uh, to that uh, thesis, that argument, because uh, the, the, what we know about early stage cancer is we still don't know if, uh, what kind of method or technology works. We know sequencing will be a big part of it, but there could be other multi-omics approach. We, we don't know which approach is going to win. So you'll have a lot of companies trying to come in. It also depends on what kinds of areas you're looking, what kinds of algorithms you're trying to develop. Mm-hmm. So th- there will be a lot of uh, companies into the coming into this market, and Illumina has an incentive here by owning Rail to perhaps be discriminated upcoming competition. So because Illumina is sort of the the gold standard that's going to be used, the platform that would be used to to advance further innovation, they're not. The FTC is saying that they're not allowed or should not have a basically a, a horse in this race. Correct, because of uh, the incentives that raises, right? If you if you really think um, early cancer detection is a 20, 30, $40 billion market, right? Uh, you have a variety of uh, estimates out there. They're all in the tens of billions. Then Illumina has a lot of incentives, even uh, you know, at the risk of losing some business on, on the instrument reagent side, uh, you're protecting your, your mode around early cancer detection. That's the larger piece. Fascinating. And just finally, you you wrote up a few notes this week. You, you held a webinar on it. and But one of your conclusions was that while, while Illumina, and maybe you can speak to how they're going to challenge this, you don't, they are going to challenge it, but you seem to think that they're going to have a, a, a steep hill to climb. In reading that FTC complaint, this is a high science. I mean, to be honest, it's, it's uh, the specialists in the field probably understand some of the nuances. The, the uh, amount of resources, efforts that the FTC has put in to understand uh, what's happening, it was pretty deep. So it, it feels like the FTC is really well prepared uh, to, to make their case and block the transaction. Now, from Illumina's perspective, uh, they've gone down this path. Uh, it's very hard for them to back now. And so it now becomes a question of uh, how much time and resources are Illumina and Rail willing to put into uh, this effort, right? If this goes to court, it becomes, uh, it, no one knows what the outcome could be. And if cancer is, it, it has an emotional component to it. It, it. You never know how people could react when, when uh, the case is argued in a court. So I don't think it's a straight shot. Like the headline statistics, uh, when, you, when you look at uh, historical precedents, FTC, DOJ challenges to vertical mergers, uh, they're not that successful. 90% of these deals usually go through. And so the headlines would suggest, look, Alumina Grail will go through. But the way the FTC has approached it and they're fastening their uh, arguments, this does not seem to be straightforward. There's a real risk of uh, 
this uh, lining up of the cores. And just the final question, I do wonder if, if Illumina hadn't spun out the technology and instead had developed it internally. I mean, would this have been something that would they have been targeted for FTC seeking a breakup of some kind at some point or... I guess it's. I guess it's hard to speculate, but it's just an interesting, interesting turn of events. Yeah, for sure. And and, and that's a great question. And, and uh, the the honest answer is I don't know because someone would have had to bring this up back to the FTC. Usually, the FTC gets involved when when there is a deal. That's when they look at the transactions closely. If this was organic in house, I don't know. You know, unless someone complained to the FTC, it would have, it'll be hard for them to look at it. I guess the one analogy would be what's happening with the big tech, right? Mm -hmm. But then uh, to go down that path, you need to believe that these these tests are extremely successful. So it's hard to argue before these tests are launched. So uh, you're right. I think if uh, Rail was part of, I think they would have had a better chance of uh, launching this test. I know you have a busy day. I appreciate your your taking the time and uh, and joining us on the podcast. Uh, Thanks for having me on, Tom. Take care. All right, and we're back. Chris Newmarker, what is number four on your remarkable Newmarker's Newsmakers list? Hey, you know, number four is uh, is from our uh, associate editor, uh, Sean Hooley, who just like, man, that guy is like a writing machine. But he did a, a really well-reported story on uh, how uh, 5G could, could affect MedTech. I mean, you got wireless tech companies such as Qualcomm, you know, saying that, you know, this could be like download speeds as high as 10 gigabytes per second, you know, when uh, when this rolls out eventually worldwide. Um, and, uh, you know, kind of like the experts at companies, including like Philips and Medtronic, kind of kind of single. It's going to take time to see what this is going to do for MedTech. Um, I mean, it definitely seems my experience with the industry is that we're definitely not a super fast adopter <laughs> of new stuff. You think? You know, but um, yeah, but I... Uh, you know, it, it you know it was interesting that I mean, okay, so I mean, there's a whole section of the story talking about telerobotics, and that that seems like a no-brainer. Like you know, super fast communications uh, definitely having would definitely help. Uh, you know, having a robot operate on somebody remotely, you know, in this, with a surgeon in other part of the world potentially. Um, but you know, he also mentioned that. He also had experts talking about how uh, you know five G could even you know help out with kind of this you know. This, this goal in, in the diabetes space of, of, you know, having automated insulin delivery, like you have much faster communications than, you know, you could, you know, you know, possibly spot problems faster and, you know, and, and, and kind of get even more, you know, things automated for, for people with diabetes even. So, I mean, a lot of potential things that could happen. So it'll be, it'll be neat to see what kind of uh, innovations enabled by uh, 5G in coming years. Absolutely. My, my two takeaways is number one, I agree with you entirely. It's going to be a, a fascinating sector to continue to cover in upcoming years. And my takeaway number two is that Sean Hooley's parents are probably going to be eligible for the vaccine next week. So uh, good good for them. I'm happy for them. Are you sure Sean's, are you sure Sean's parents aren't younger than you? <laughs> That's mean, Chris. <laughs> You're a bad, bad med tech editor. I know, I know. <laughs> Let's roll on to number three on the new markers, newsmakers oh, list. I feel, I feel guilty I can, already, Tom. I, I asked for it. Already. I can take it. I can dish it out and dosh garner, I can take it. All right. Number three on the list. We've got Zimmer Biomet uh, launching a new suite of uh, digital and robotic technologies. Uh, it's the ZB Edge Connected Intelligent intelligence suite and, and this includes like everything from you know the, their rosa robotic surgery system the anatomical visualization and guidance systems such as signature one to you know their uh, iss knee alignment system so it just seems like uh you know zimmer biome just really like kind of like you know 
they're, you know, they're bundling everything, you know, they're doing a, a good, like, you know, packaging of all the stuff they're uh, trying to do around the, the digitization of orthopedic surgery. And it's a very hot space, tons of competition. I mean, basically every, every major company in the space, you know, Stryker, Zimmer Biomed, Depew, Smith and Nephew. I mean, they're all, you know, like, you know, trying to put all these digital tools in ortho surgery, you know, getting, um, you know, getting robots involved, uh, you know, and, you know, and, and even like Zimmer too, like we're expecting them to uh, release a, a smart knee implant, you know, later this year, that was a good, good scoop that we had on our sites uh, in recent months. Uh, and, you know, that's also on the, uh, the cover of our latest print edition of medical design and outsourcing, you know. All right, Chris Newmarker, bring us home. What is number two on the Newmarker's newsmakers list? All right. Number Number two, we've got uh, Medtronic veteran Brooks Story is uh, is leaving to run BD's integrated diagnostic solutions business. So this is just another yeah. example of an executive of Medtronic leaving to, to run something elsewhere. Um, I I was joking on LinkedIn recently, like, you know, we're going to have future MedTech executive conferences. They're going to feel like Medtronic alumni gatherings. You know, they can all show their mission statement medals, you know, and, you know, complain about uh winter weather in minnesota and all that stuff it'll be great you know, but, uh, <laughs> all right well chef martha did address this whole issue when we talked to him last about how medtronic seems to be uh, a feeder system for uh, other med techs and he's yeah. you know he, he acknowledges that it's uh it's sort of a role of a company to develop great talent and uh, when you develop great talent they can uh, find better opportunities someplace else so uh he wants medtronic to be a, a talent factory but still i'm sure they're not happy losing someone like like brooke story yeah, but still, uh, yeah, just just a really good good sign of you know the, just the the caliber of executives that they uh, have around there that you know they, they they're obviously like uh, really developing a good leadership culture and it's you know like the, those leaders are like also you know moving out and uh, you know spreading some of those ideas to other companies so yeah very very cool and kind of similar to what happened in the past I know Martha mentioned that too that you know in the past like uh, GE Healthcare you, know, you had a lot of executives mm-hmm. from GE who ended up all kinds of different companies in the industry. So it's, it's kind of a pattern you can see sometimes. Great point. Yeah, it's something we'll continue to follow for sure. All right, Chris, what is the big number one? Well, number one on the list is uh, Abbott's announcement that it's uh, it's a uh, speedy Binax now COVID-19 test that you can, you know, use on yourself. It's, you know, similar in a lot of ways to a pregnancy test. Um, it's, it's over the counter now. And, you know, because of, you know, Abbott's relationships with all these big giant retailers, I mean, this thing is expected to roll out the, across the country and they're saying this thing's going to be affordable too. It's going to be, you know, priced like other common over the counter tests. So there won't be like sticker shock when you find the box in a store. Um, you know, I mean, there, there were actually a number of, um, of uh, over-the-counter approvals of, of, you know, these types of tests uh, this week, but definitely Abbott's test, you know, sticks out just because they're saying, just because of like the amount that this could be rolled out and the affordability. And, um, you know, I mean, I guess, uh, I mean, the pandemic, we're, we're hopefully really going to tackle this thing this year. We got the vaccines rolling out, but we still need a heck of a lot of testing and we're going to need screening tests. And this is just, you know, appears to be more, more good news that, you know, it's just going to become a lot something else that's just going to make things easier for us as we hopefully drag our way out of this out of this pandemic this year and get back to normal and you know i i i wouldn't be surprised if i if you know if uh you know my my wife and i are going to a a music show later this year and there's a stack of tests like that at the doorway and you gotta take something before you get in so we'll 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 see what happens and chris is abbott the only company out there with uh with a at-home test you know um 
you know, some of the other companies that got, you know, authorizations, um, you know, recently include, uh, you know, the Quietal Quick View at home test, as well as uh, the, uh, you know, the um, v- BD Veritor Plus system, you know, was authorized for a point of care screening without a prescription as well. So, so, you know, we're, we're definitely getting like a lot more tests that are like a lot more readily available. Excellent. Great news. Yeah, awesome news. Well, this is a great, uh, great lead-in for our uh, our closing keynote conversation. I had a chance to speak with uh, Lisa Earnhardt, Executive Vice President of Medical Devices at Abbott. We, she's not in charge of the uh, of the diagnostic tests, but uh, we had a, a far-ranging conversation, including a question about robotics and digital surgery that uh, we'll get into right now. Well, Lisa Earnhardt, welcome to the podcast. Happy to be here, Tom. Thanks for having me. Lisa, you would have no way of remembering this, but you were my first guest on my first MedTech podcast. And that interview we published six years ago, almost to this day. We're talking in mid-March. So it's great to have you back. A lot has changed. A lot has changed over <laughs> six years. And certainly this past year, And it's, it's an exciting time, obviously, to be in MedTech and looking forward to talking to you. Yeah, no. This this past year has uh, seemed much longer than that. Uh, so let's let's speak to that first. I I do want to get into your path in the med tech, but I'd ask this question of others. So many of you have gone into the med tech industry for the for the explicit purpose of of creating technology that helps people. So it's already in your blood. But this past year has really been an opportunity for the med tech sector to step up. And and Abbott, and specifically, while I know you're not uh, in charge of the diagnostics tests, Abbott has been up f- at the forefront you know, coming up with solutions and, and tests and, and ways of sort of helping us move forward as a society. As just an employee at Abbott, knowing, seeing your your workplace up in the headlines day after day, week after week, what did that, uh, what did that feel like for you? Yeah, and I, I, I would echo your comments in terms of this year has been like no other, and it certainly <laughs> showed us all what we're made of. And I mean, both individually as, as companies and certainly as an industry, I would say I've been quite proud to be part of the med tech industry. And I think we really did step up to all the challenges. And, and certainly at Abbott, we we did, uh, right? So we were really built for this. So I would think it's a very it was a very proud moment for all of us this past year. It's really not a moment, but it's a, a whole year of just a tremendous pride in terms of the contributions we've made during the pandemic. And while our diagnostic teammates really led the way there, I think we all we all really stepped up and worked collaboratively uh, across across the board to, to make an impact. Obviously, the diagnostic is what has gotten the, the most play. I think we have nearly about 12 or dozen or so tests out there. Really, the goal was having a suite of a suite of testing for to make sure we had the right test in the right place at the right time. And and we certainly have been moving in a light speed. And so I think tremendous pride, really amazing in terms of how resilient we've been as a company, but also mm-hmm. how quickly we've been able to move in a, in a time of crisis. And that's been really encouraging. I mean, you don't think of a 100,000 person organization who's been around for 130 years able to really turn on a dime and come forth with such real breakthrough innovation in such a short amount of time. So it's really, as I said, just a recap, I think it's just tremendous pride amongst the employees of Abbott and proud to be part of the team. That's great. I'll just to follow up, I, I want to sort of get a sense in, in working over this past year, I'm wondering how life has been different. I mean, you're, you're, you've, you're moving forward and obviously it's a pandemic and such. We're all working from home. We're all working through, through Zoom, but at a med tech company, you already have sort of a, an immediacy of, of getting things through clinical trials, getting things on the market, getting products to patients. I wonder 
how has your job or your feelings about your job changed day to day? How has working at Abbott and in the medtech industry more broadly changed with all of this? Is it is it you're still you're still pursuing the same goals, but but how is it different? Yeah, I mean, we're obviously still focused on helping people live their best lives through technology, but the intensity in which we've done that, I mean, I think about the early days when we were learning about the pandemic early in 2020 and literally on calls every day. I mean, probably on calls every day for several months, just trying to make decisions, to prioritize, to make sure we were keeping our employees safe, Mm -hmm. uh, to making some tough decisions early on in terms of how we were going to respond as Abbott. So I would say the intensity definitely has increased over the past year and it it continues to, right? Because it is a dynamic, dynamic time. And I I look at that and where there's changes opportunity. And I think one of the most exciting things is I think there's a lot of good that will come from COVID. It's hard to think that right now, but I do see the light at the end of the tunnel. And I think there's a lot of great things in terms of how we can apply technology to really transform care moving forward. So I think all the intensity, all the stress, all the hard work, um, just incredibly proud of my team continue to move moving everything forward on the innovation side and supporting our customers. But I think all of that will translate to really good things in the future. Oh, that's great. And and just to, to follow the final question on this, and I do want to later on ask about specific technologies and, and remote tech, and you have a cool VR platform that I want to talk about. But in, in talking again about how COVID impacted the company, looking at the annual report, your device businesses uh, seem to take a hit from 2019 to 2020, like like many device companies have for obvious reasons. Wondering what the, what the lasting impact on Abbott Medical Devices will be from this pandemic, not only from a, uh, not from a financial point of view, but more operationally. What changes did you make to, to cope with this and how different might this business look than it did in January, 2020? Yeah. And as I think it, it was a tough year, no question about it for, for lots of reasons and in particular in med tech, but I do think COVID really accelerated the future and has us really keenly focused on areas that we knew were coming down the, down the pike. We've seen it coming from t- time in terms of sort of digital, um, the digitalization of healthcare, ensuring patients and, and people have access to technology around the world. And I think that's one thing COVID did is sort of unleash the, the need for that in a huge way. And so I think as a med tech business, it's really brought that much more into focus in terms of how do we develop connected devices? How do we transform care through things like wireless implants, wearable sensors, leveraging mobile platforms, Mm -hmm. really meeting people where they are for their care? So I think about this as probably more in terms of strategic direction. It's pulled things in, right? There's things that we thought we would do three, five, 10 years from now Mm -hmm. that we actually started working on this last year because, because the world so changed so much in such a fast you know amount of time and i think that's actually really really good for for us at abbott it's actually really good for us as an industry well that's great and, and just in terms of employees themselves how how you're working do you see any difference in what the company oh yeah is? i think in terms of like operationally how yeah. we work i think the the value of flexibility and, and ensuring that you know 
that employees can take advantage of that. I think we found that we were able to be very successful at continuing to move the pipeline forward, continue our clinical trials, working on everything we do to add value in healthcare. And for the most part, a lot of our employees did that remotely, mm-hmm. right? And so I think we've proven that we've been able to do that. We think about sort of returning to the office, it will look different. Great. Well, let's go back to my unusual beginning with the podcast. And I just want to sort of understand your story as to how you how you got into into medtech what was your what was your entry point yeah i was an i was an engineer undergraduate and mm-hmm. out of school i went into management consulting, but in the healthcare world. So I loved mostly working with hospitals, healthcare providers, thinking about how they could be more efficient and deliver better patient care. And when I went back to business school, I'm like, what? I'm kind of done with healthcare. It takes forever to get things done. There's mm-hmm. so many stakeholders. And I, I always loved technology. And I kind of gravitated back to my engineering world and did an internship at Dell Computer. And a big part of that was it moved fast and it's cool and cutting edge. And I want to be part of that world. And then at the end of the summer, I was like, you know what? I'm not sure I'm making the kind of impact on the world. It sounds kind of grandiose, but it's kind of sometimes how I think that sort of impact I want to work in terms, make in terms of my work. Right. And that's Mm -hmm. where MedTech came in. It was like the perfect combination combining two of my passions, healthcare and technology, and really able to do both of those. So out of business school, I started with guidance and have been in uh, healthcare ever since. In fact, I think it's been about, it's been almost 25 years since I started in the industry. That's fantastic. And and you were yeah, in the guiding group out in in the Silicon Valley in the Bay Area. Are you still there? In the it's area? interesting because out of school, I actually was up in the Twin Cities. I lived in a bunch of different locations oh, right. and ended up uh, back out here. And I say back because I went to school out the, uh, this way. But yeah, it's ironic because I am um, in my office right now. And it's actually the same building that I used to work in with guidance. Um, so I'm literally <laughs> you know, like probably 100 feet from my old office, <laughs> but in a very different job. Abbott is a very different company. I mean, gosh, when I worked here at guidance, Abbott really wasn't in MedTech. And as I think about how Abbott has really transformed with the spin out of AbbVie and with the acquisition of St. Jude, Mm -hmm. it's really transformed to be a leader in technology. And it's kind of fun to come full circle to literally be coming into work in the same building I worked in 20, 20 some odd years ago. That's amazing. So speaking to your your point about MedTech being cool, I wonder, you know, at your, well, I was going to say at your barbecues and cocktail parties, but we're not having those very much. But in, in, in going forward, as we, as you, you tell people you're in the MedTech industry in an area that's, that is really is dominated obviously by, by tech. Do you think MedTech's cachet has increased at all from the pandemic? Do you think that they'll, you'll have an easier time perhaps competing with uh, Google or an Amazon for the top engineering talent? What's the, what's the long-term impact there? Yeah, I think it's a, a once again a net positive for the medtech industry because it's really raised the awareness of healthcare and what we see really more more now than ever is people really want more control of their health. They're much more aware. They're much more interested. It's it's really good for medtech in terms of recruiting talent because I think we're we're generally we're smaller industry than technology, but I think people recognize there's a burning need to be doing things different in healthcare. And medtech is a great way to to, to make a difference by leveraging technology to 
to help people in particular with chronic conditions lead better lives. So I'm, I'm, I'm excited. Once again, I'm always looking for the glass half full. What are the good things that have come out of COVID? And there certainly are some. And I, and I think the role that MedTech played within and during the pandemic certainly raised our visibility. And then I think it also just raised the importance of healthcare, where typically maybe people didn't think about healthcare in in terms of they were later in their years. I think people all really want to sort of own their healthcare much earlier and with much greater control than they had historically. And and also have wanted to get treatment outside of the four walls of the hospital, which I think Mm -hmm. has been an important trend coming out of COVID that I think will impact how we approach our, our work in the industry. And just final question about yourself. When we had talked uh, previously on the podcast, you were the CEO of a startup that had just gone public when we first talked. And then I think we talked again and you obviously were a more mature publicly traded company. You swapped the CEO role at a, at a smaller company for a, a larger position at, at Abbott. What was uh, that transition like and, and what, what led you to that change? Yeah, I mean, there are, there are a couple of things. I obviously was so proud of the work we did at Intersect. But as I was sort of thinking of my next phase of my career, really thinking through how could I have even greater impact. So one of the things that attracted me to Abbott was sort of our focus on some of the most costly, debilitating chronic uh, conditions, such as cardiovascular disease, diabetes, chronic pain, movement disorders. And those are all areas, for the most part, I had spent time in and had a lot of passion for. And uh, Abbott really allowed me the opportunity to make an impact at scale. And, and I also think coming from the startup world, there's so much focus on innovation. And that's one of the things I recognized at Abbott as a 130-year-old company. They obviously have a, and we now obviously have had a, <laughs> and we figured out how to innovate and how to change and transform. And to be part of that uh, was, was really attractive to me. And so I really felt like it was such a great opportunity to, to, to lead at scale, to have an impact. The St. Jude acquisition had been done a couple of years before I uh, started, and I was convinced that we had the right products, we had the right pipeline, and really the right people to become a leader. Let's uh, let's walk through the, the portfolio a bit. I mean, it is broad. You've got rhythm management, electrophysiology, heart failure, vascular, structural heart. Neuromod and diabetes care. We'll start at the the bottom because you've you've had a lot of success. That's actually the one business that has finished stronger in 2020. I'm guessing it's due to to the Freestyle Libre. <laughs> yeah, Libre has been a real breakthrough. I mean, it really frees people from sort of the pain and hassles of finger sticks. It enables people to manage their glucose levels really seamlessly and allows them to live the life they want to lead without having this be such a such a burden. So really having that sort of real-time information that's available on their phone, uh, wherever they are, is has really been a breakthrough. And we're really just scratching the surface um, in terms of the adoption of continuous glucose monitors. And I'm, I'm proud that we're really leading the way as Abbott with Libre. That's terrific. And uh, I see that I'm just going through some of the headlines on the in the diabetes space that you were, Abbott's also working with the American Diabetes Association to work on a health equity now platform to address health disparities for people living with diabetes. It's, uh, that's the last year is in particular, for many reasons, healthcare and equity has become a, a huge issue. How, how important was that program to you? 
Yeah, I, I would say as Abbott, expanding access and really eliminating barriers to health has been a core part of our strategy. Mm-hmm. And, and COVID just sort of highlighted that need. And so the sponsorship we have with ADA is really all about expanding access to diabetes technologies, sort of tackling all the barriers that pre- prevent access. So as I think about Libra, it really goes back to how we started the development of that product, which was, hey, you know, diabetes technologies is was really in its infancy. It was pretty complex, hard to use, didn't really fit into people's lives. And so the sort of the, the fundamental design goal for, for Libre really was to make it actually like Fisher Price-like. And you remember Fisher Price toys, like easy to use. <laughs> um, anyone can do it. It doesn't take a technologist or a lot of expertise to be able to fit it into your life. And so both in terms of the technology and its ease of use, how we priced it, it's the, it's the lowest price CGM on the market. Uh, very intentionally. We have one global price. And so that's a very different approach than historically has been taken in the med tech space. So I think having that, it's been core to our strategy long-term. And so the partnership with the American Diabetes Association is really taking it that next step and ensuring that that the masses could really benefit from diabetes, which is really an epidemic, both here stateside and and around the globe. And so we're really fortunate to be partnering with them on that and and glad to have like-minded individuals who are really focused on ensuring access and breaking down the barrier. So it's not it's not easy to do in healthcare, but we're incredibly committed to the effort and the cause. That's core to our strategy at Abbott. That's great. Let's let's circle back to the earlier part of our conversation. We talked about programs that may have been accelerated by COVID. We last in March we reported that the FDA approved neuromodulation platform that allowed for better communication with with patients and physicians. So patients the, could monitor their or or alter their their chronic pain treatment remotely. The Neurosphere Virtual Clinic is that something that has been? I mean, it seems like it's certainly a perfect for the time. to, to yeah, that, that is such a great example, Tom, of a program that we accelerated. So I think yeah. that was on our, our product map for like 2025 or something as we were kicking off the year. And we would just, we would sit back and just think, imagine a world, like imagine a world where someone with chronic pain or Parkinson's disease was mm-hmm. at home. They didn't have a physician appointment for a couple of months, but they needed, they needed help. But think about the time that they may be 150 miles away, right? from their physician, which is really the case in particular for Parkinson's patients who, where there's really centers of excellence. So instead of having go, to get in the car, drive, park, go into the clinic, get your device reprogrammed, we really had this vision of being able to sort of meet the patient where they are, when they need it. And that's exactly what the virtual care platform has, has, has enabled. So we're in the early stage of launching there, but you can, you can connect with your physician through a secure portal and you're, they're actually able to program your device remotely and provide you in, in the in the case of pain relief, provide you symptom relief right there and then without having to leave your home. So that was sort of a vision we had. Mm-hmm. Longer term, we didn't think the world was quite ready for that. Like who <laughs> thinks about getting healthcare at home? Right. right. Like that just hasn't that just wasn't how we were viewing that as a as a society. But what we were able to do is really push the accelerator on that. I'm so proud of the neuromodulation team because they they stepped up. It's really it's breakthrough. It's the first system of its kind that enables this type of remote programming. And really excited about uh, the potential for this platform, not just for neuromodulation, but Obviously, as we think about our other connected devices and and the potential we're going to be able to to bring forth to to meet people where they are. 
what is the process for deciding where and when to push on, on the gas pedal? Did you go through your whole portfolio and sort of identify things that might be more necessary in a kind of new world order? What was the process like? Yeah, the team's really, they're very much empowered here. We run a separate, fully accountable businesses within Abbott. But I think early on, my leadership team really started thinking about, hey, what are areas that we can make a difference in the pandemic? And we think this is going to be lasting. So it wasn't just the, hey, let's try to step in and, and meet an acute need. It was the the, the world is changing. The acceleration of telehealth is a good thing for healthcare. I mean, it's one of, one of the few things that's a win for the patient because they can get care when and where they want it. It's a win for the physician because they can drive efficiency in their practice and, and really deliver better patient outcomes. And then it's a win for the healthcare system. So you don't have too many things mm-hmm. like that. And so we did sort of look, um, my leaders did a fantastic job looking across the portfolio. And there's some other areas that we were able to accelerate put more focus on. CardioMEMS is one of those areas that's a pressure monitor for implantable pressure monitor for, for people with heart failure. And mm-hmm. in that case, it allows physicians uh, to remotely monitor changes in pulmonary artery pressure. And they can, they can predict when patients might decompensate and develop symptoms. And so instead of waiting for a patient to present to the, to the ER, which unfortunately is, is an often point of entry for these patients, they're actually able to adjust their meds from the, from the comfort of their own home, adjust their treatment. It, you know, it reduces hospitalization. It's exactly the kind of technology and the exactly the kind of changes we need to make in healthcare to help keep people out of hospitals, to keep them healthy, and to use predictive analytics to do that. So those are the kinds of things that we're always that we were always working on at Abbott. This is not something that's that's new. It's hasn't been new for us. Hasn't been new for the industry. But I think we were able to really react pretty quickly and said we need to we need to go and we need to go now on this because the world's going to look very differently. I mean, I don't think we knew exactly how it would look. I certainly don't think we'd be here a year later mm-hmm. and would still be in the midst of the pandemic, but I do see the light at the end of the tunnel, at least here stateside, but it's going to be, it's, it's going to be changing to healthcare. And once again, I think it's a good thing. And also looking at, uh, you have a a new VR uh, training program for interventional cardiologists. Is that something else that, that had been accelerated because of COVID? Yeah. And so once again, as we think about training, as we think about case support and proctoring, these were all things as we thought about how can we reduce barriers to adoption of technology, especially globally, right? Because we don't have people all over who are experienced who can support cases. We don't have physicians, experts in every market around the globe. But what COVID did is say, hey, we need to we need to work more quickly on that. So it really has changed the way that we engage and support our customers. And I think training and case support is a great example, whether that be some of the work we're doing with augmented reality, whether it be utilizing sort of remote procedure guidance for all different kinds of procedures. But many of our procedures do require case support or proctoring either by my team or by our by other trained and expert physicians. And so to be able to to do that and have an expert physician from let's say Boston telepresence and and, and leverage some of the great technology out there. And, and we actually did this in I think it was India where we did some of our, our first cases with MitraClip, which is our transcatheter structural heart for, for people with structural heart device for people with leaky mitral valves. We actually did some of our first cases leveraging 
leveraging remote uh, proctoring capability. So it really showed us the potential in once again, like it's a silver lining of it all is those are all things we're working on because you know, a lot of our, our, a lot of our procedures require sort of expert training and inpatient education, but all the obstacles last year in terms of travel restrictions and everything that went along with that has really reduced some barriers by, by leveraging technology. So once again, lots of exciting things that are coming out of this that we all, we always knew were good ideas, but the sense of urgency around them really had us, had us and also our customers embrace these cutting-edge technologies. That's terrific. Well, we're looking forward. We have, we could spend an hour going over the rest of your portfolio, but I'll just, I know you have to go. What do, what do you have looking forward for the rest of the year for Abbott? As we, as we get back into a more normal, what do you see as being some, some big developments for, for Abbott coming up? Yeah, we have a number of key product launches this year. Uh, we had some major ones last year between Libre 2, our, our next generation MitraClip device, and, and a number of important new structural heart devices in, in Europe. And the other ones were all in, in the US. We also have just recently launched a Bluetooth-enabled uh, defibrillator called the Gallant product. So we really across the board in each one of my franchises have a number of important uh, products launches this year, which will continue to accelerate over the years to come. As I said, we did not lose a lot of ground last year, despite all the challenges from the pandemic. So I'm really looking to the the cadence of products. I'm really looking to becoming even more relevant to our to our customers, whether that be the, the people who use our devices, the physicians, or the patients who benefit from them through some of our connected devices and systems. We're really wanting to make technology an extender of their of their life and a core to who they are and how they manage their health. So yeah. lots of lots of exciting things ahead from Abbott and not just obviously medical devices, but that's near and dear to my heart, as you know. <laughs> and finally, just a quick question. We've just been talking with everyone else about digital surgery. How do you see Abbott representing that play? And, and is there a need for a robotics program there? We're, all, we're always looking at innovation across the board, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and robotics is an interesting, interesting area. Unlike other large sort of multinational companies where they're more heavily focused in traditional surgery, which robotics have had a a larger role. We're obviously really focused on chronic disease management. So that's a little bit more. And so I think our focus has been, will continue to be really moving outside the four walls of the hospital and thinking about chronic disease management and how do we help the patient every step of the way in terms of their disease progression and making sure we have a solution. So I think digital surgery is just one very small piece of the overall equation. It's really putting sort of uh, digital health solutions and surrounding our our technology. I I like to think about it as like moving beyond the device Mm because oftentimes we talk about our our devices, right? We're very device centric. That's what we are as a med tech industry. And I'm, I'm trying to help us think through is how do we move beyond the device and really uh, embrace the, the the positive changes that are that have been accelerated because of COVID. And, and so you'll see a lot of us, a lot of our new products and our, our services and support in that area. Excellent. Well, it's a, it's a very important work and I don't want to keep you from it any longer. So thanks for your, your time today, Lisa. Thanks for joining us on the podcast. Yeah. And thanks for all that you do on behalf of MedTech. We're, we're happy to have you in the field. I appreciate that. All right. It was great having Lisa Earnhardt on the podcast. Chris Newmarker, you know what time it is. How do you reach me? Well, you know, <laughs> I'm on LinkedIn, Chris Newmarker, just like a Newmarker. And I'm on Twitter 
at Newmarker. So always happy to catch up with people. And they can find us on Clubhouse next Monday, Wednesday, Woo! right? Not Monday, yeah, Wednesday. We're doing Wednesday Wednesday, now. Wednesday, 1 o'clock Eastern, Device Talks yeah. Weekly, live, 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 live. live. Yeah, well, we uh, had a great conversation with uh, Megan Ziemba and Clancy Amati from PhotoFab the other day. We talked about manufacturing a bit, but actually the uh, what's, what's great about Clubhouse is the conversation can go where it goes. And we ended up talking mostly about women in manufacturing and women in engineering and women in the workforce. So it was a, yeah, it was a really interesting great. conversation, but uh, definitely going to uh, try to line up some guests for, uh, for next week as well. So it's a great opportunity. If you're on clubhouse, please join us again. 1 PM on Wednesday. You can find Chris and myself there. 1 PM Eastern time. 1 PM Eastern. 1 PM Eastern. Eastern. 1 yes. PM Eastern. Right. I am on Twitter at MedTechTom. I am on LinkedIn, Tom Salemi. Please uh, connect with us there. It's always great to to hear from folks. And uh, it would be great if everyone would uh, subscribe to this podcast. As I mentioned, every week, we've got hundreds of people listening to this podcast before we even push it out through our, our massive and powerful social media channels. So it means they're subscribed. You should subscribe as well. Do it. Just push the subscribe button. It's simple. It's easy. And you'll get the podcast sent right to you. Follow, subscribe, like. <laughs> exactly. Also, I mean, do do follow our uh, all of our uh, social media channels for uh, Mass Device, Medical Design and Outsourcing, Device Talks. We have a great social media team that's uh, pumping out some very cool stuff. So uh, make sure you, you look for us out there. And finally, please uh, don't forget to uh, tell your friends about this podcast. If you enjoyed yourself, let, uh, let folks know that you're listening to the Device Talks Weekly Podcast. And tune in next week. We'll have another great episode waiting for you. Rubbing it in. I guess. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, man.